brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Prep.com on time, on target. Ian Scotto here with Jack Murphy. Luke Ryan was on last episode, um, talked about a whole bunch of stuff. And then pretty much shortly after we left, we heard about this shooting at the YouTube headquarters. That was like the big story of that day. Yeah, that's a weird one. Yeah, I, I don't even want to play the videos on here because... I, I think I'd be a hypocrite because we often talk about how the media kind of makes these people famous after they, you know, engage in an act like this. But yeah, this this woman created a lot of content on YouTube. And, and they're weird. Very weird. They're and, weird. And, you know, I'm not saying that you could label someone as being mentally unstable from some videos they do on YouTube, but it, it really appears that way to me. Well, you know, whenever these shootings happen, we rush really quick to uh, identify some sort of political ideology of the shooter. And, like, we really want to do that. Like, we really, if you're right wing, you really want that shooter to be uh, an anti-gun Democrat, you know. You want the shooter to be Antifa, kind of what this person was. Or, or you, if you're uh, if you're left wing, you need that shooter to be a fascist, neo-Nazi, Republican, NRA member. It's really sad the way we, like, do that. We try to, um, you know, push a political ideology on the shooter. If you look at a lot of these shooters, they don't have any discernible, you know, like cohesive political ideology. They're actually crazy people. Well, I mean, for this woman, though, she was very big vegan activist. That was like her big thing. Yeah, she was uh, animal rights and stuff like that. Um, but is that why she shot up YouTube? For according to what she wrote, it seems like they demonetized her videos. They, um, you know, her content wasn't showing up on uh, where it should have been. She, this might be uh, hyperbole, but she was saying that they uh, were censoring her videos. So, man, a lot of that might have been in her head. But we talked about, you know, my uh, nerdy hobbies and you know, scale modeling and all this kind of stuff. I, I was seeing uh, some guy's video. He does like YouTube tutorials on like you know, here's how you make your model railroad and all that kind of stuff. And his videos would get demonetized by YouTube. It yeah. was like the most like benign thing you can possibly imagine. Like, Oh, we're making HO scale pine trees. Here it is. You know, I, there's, I, I don't think there's a complete rhyme or reason to it because I could tell you on software TV's YouTube page, all of our shit is demonetized and it's not all guns. It's not, you know, our, our interviews on here. We can't monetize those. I don't know why. But it's up to them. They're a private company. They could do what they want. Um, but that seemed to be this woman's beef is that she. Yeah. So, I mean, there, I don't do we really know that YouTube demonetized her videos because she's a animal rights activist? Is that the reason? No, why? we don't. But, it, but I think this woman had some anger because she was getting. But she, she believed getting, that she believed that in her mind. Right. Yeah. I think. But also, if you're receiving checks every month through YouTube, big or small, 
and then all of a sudden they stop coming. Right. If you're mentally unstable, that type sure. of thing could set you sure. off. And that's and and her brother apparently reported it to local police. Mm-hmm. They interviewed her, uh, and they let her go. Yeah, they questioned her. They found her sleeping in her car, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's nothing the police can do unless they know that she's, like, threatened violence or something like that. You know, they can't arrest her on a crime she hasn't committed. Yeah, that's... I mean, in other countries, they, they might. But here, you do have your constitutional... Bro, in other so. countries, they'd fucking arrest you on the spot and harvest your organs to sell on the black market. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just... That's the difference between living in America, I This guess. isn't Red China, Ian. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, the obvious thing that's kind of strange about this shooting or that stands out i guess is the fact that uh i haven't heard of a mass well i I can't say mass shooting because no one was even killed but it was attempted to be some type of mass shooting the the media Uh, wanted to portray it as a mass shooting yeah but by a by a woman right it's it's always a male i know i know they saw oftentimes a white male but you know there's definitely been middle eastern males but i i never hear of of a there was the san bernardino where it was a husband wife team yeah but, yeah, I can't think of too many instances of a woman being involved. Yeah, or where a woman is the one who opens fire. There are other cases like the uh, Boston bombers where who was it? Was it the uh, aunt or the mother? There's that woman who's just like a total psycho that really it looks like she pushed the two brothers or the two cousins in, in that direction. But I think usually the like gunmen themselves, the, the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't see bombs, it very often. Yeah, yeah, they're they're just men. So when I heard woman and I'll be honest with with my own uh, perception of things going on, when I first heard about this shooting, uh, my immediate reaction was actually that I thought it would be a pro gun right advocate person because we just recently heard that YouTube is you know getting rid of gun videos and I thought this was maybe a crazy person on the right. Ian, why do you hate America? Why are you starting with this anti gun bias? <laughs> that, that was my that was my reaction, and and which you know no I understand really I understand and, and, and I think had that have been the case, the media would have been on this a lot more than they they are. would have been on it like a hobo on a ham sandwich. There's no question about it. But now with this, because this woman was so screwy, um, she was so nutty. It's like one of those things where nobody really knows what to make of it. You know, um, same with like the Las Vegas shooting. Like, I think that kind of petered out because no one really knew what to make of that. You know, there's no discernible ideology. There's no discernible motive. It's just uh, a crazy person. And maybe internally in their own mind, they had their own motive, which made sense to them. Yeah. But, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense using the logic that any of us non-crazy people use. Yeah. And, and also... It would be a really long stretch to blame the NRA for something like this. Like, this was a left-wing vegan activist. Well, you can blame the NRA for anything if you really want to. Um, but I, I don't know. Like I said, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with, you know, rushing to uh, ascribe some sort of political ideology to the shooter every time one of these things happens. I don't, I don't really see it as being like the fault of a political party or no, no, a yeah, special interest. We just or, know that, that this woman's big agenda was animal rights. And right. We, that we do know. There's very open about it. That's what her videos were. Yeah. And those people who are like hardcore animal rights people, you expect them to go and like burn down a furrier or, you know, maybe sabotage a pipeline or something like that. You don't really <laughs> expect them to go to a social media headquarters and start shooting at people. Yeah. 
Um, so that was the big story. And, but then there's two big stories in the special operations and military world, so I'll get right into those. Uh, this article is from Alex Hollings. Four U.S. Marines are presumed dead following yet another tragic incident involving Marine Corps aircraft. On Tuesday, the crash was one of two incidents involving Marine Corps aircraft going down within just hours of each other. The Marines are traveling over Southern California near the Mexican border when their CH-53 Super Stallion was lost on radar at approximately 2.35 p.m. local time. Thus far, very little information regarding the incident has been released by Marine Corps officials. Um, So, yeah, that's definitely a tragic accident right there. It's horrible. It's a dangerous job, even, you know, in quote-unquote peacetime or in training. Yeah. Uh, And then this just came out. uh, As we're recording this, uh, Luke put this article out uh, this morning. Afghan airstrike on Madrasa, dozens reported killed. The Afghani Air Force conducted a targeted strike on a madrasa in Taliban territory on northeast Afghanistan in the Kunduz province. province. Current news reports are circulating of over 50 killed and 150 wounded. Though the reports have been particularly conflicting as time goes on, this has sparked an international outrage, as many of the victims included children. The U.N. has expressed deep concern on what appears to be an attack that was initially reported as an enemy stronghold and then turned out to be a religious school or a madrasa, though those things are not always mutually exclusive in Afghanistan. Exactly how many of the casualties were civilians and how many were members of the Taliban is not yet known, though the Afghan government has conceded that civilians were killed. Uh, Muhammad Radmani, deputy spokesman for the Defense Ministry, said that 18 senior Taliban personnel perished in the strike, along with 17 other members of the Taliban. He would insist that the people treated on the ground had sustained injuries from bullets, not from an airstrike, and that he believes the Taliban to have fired on civilians to make the Afghani government appear culpable. Uh, The Taliban responded by insisting that the airstrikes had hit, had mostly hit children. The full article is up at Sofrip.com, but that's what's out there. Winning the hearts and minds. So we were speaking about this before we recorded, and, you know, you were saying about this, you know, this is the power going to the Afghanis. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the what the intent is that we're eventually going to theoretically transition everything over to the government of Afghanistan, the same way we did in Iraq. And, you know, I, I used to laugh about it. I mean, it's not really funny, but I used to laugh when I was in Iraq and we were scaling things down. We were going to withdraw out of that country. Everyone knew it was coming. And um, people were still in an outrage about Abu Ghraib and um, detainee abuse and stuff like that. But my experience, Americans were pretty tame with detainees. Um, You know, we were fairly respectful. Um, But when we had when I went there on my second deployment in 2009, that was when, because of the new SOFA agreement coming, we had we could not hold detainees anymore. We had to hand them over immediately to the Iraqis. And when that happened, I mean, forget anything the United States did. The Iraqis didn't give a shit about human rights and would just torture the hell out of these people. Um, you know, we had one guy get disappeared out into the desert, never saw him again. Another guy, they would handcuff him standing up 
to a, a jail cell so he could not sit down. And, uh, you know, we arrested him on his wedding day. When we come back to the prison like four months later, he's still wearing his wedding suit, handcuffed, standing Holy up. Shit. Like, yeah, they did not fuck around. So it's this interesting dynamic. It's like, oh, well, you know, we have to transition control over to the locals because of human rights violations and blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, okay, man. But nobody was nastier to the Iraqis than their fellow Iraqis. I mean, that's just the truth behind it. And I mean, I don't make excuse for any um, illegal activities that Americans did. That was wrong. No question about that. But by comparison, if you look at the big picture, they were in much better hands with us than they ever were with their own government. And reading how like the UN is outraged and all that, does it really mean anything anymore when? No. Yeah. No. I mean, okay, cool. UN. I mean, you're outraged. Great. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you think that means there'll be any change in policy or that. No, it's also fucking Afghanistan. I mean, this is what they've been doing for a thousand years, for more than a thousand years. You know, it's not going to change. Yeah. All right. Well, go to softrep.com. You'll get to see, um, you know, the continued coverage on that type of stuff. We have George Hand coming on, which I know we've had George on twice, but we've never really spoken to George about his background. And every time he's on, it's really the human trafficking stuff. But I'd love to hear some Delta Force stories out of him, so I'm looking forward yeah, to that. Yeah, George had a very, very interesting military career. Um, so, yeah, we'll get into that with him. And I should also mention, and I'll, I'll mention it again at some point, but you have your memoir up for pre-order, Murphy's Law. The pre-order link is up. It's yeah. coming. I'm, I'm excited for it, man. And it seems Me like too. a lot of people are, too. Me, too. I, uh, I had a, actually a long conversation with a former teammate of mine. Talking, we talked about on the phone for about an hour and a half yesterday. It was kind of a, he was filling me in on some of the other things that were going on on uh, one of my deployments, some of the politics and stuff like that, that I wasn't I was aware of some of it, but not all of it. So it's a really interesting experience. Um, and, you know, we're still editing the book. Um, but it'll be up available in October. In October, yes. Um, so yeah, I'm excited. I think uh, I, I don't know. It's it's hard to know what to say. It's you know, it's a book about my perspective written by me. <laughs> so it's uh, it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be pretty different than a lot of the other books. Do you plan genre. on doing any signings or anything? It's really up to the publicist uh, at, at Simon and Schuster, and I know they're still putting things together. The publicity will probably really start to get a little more serious uh, around the summertime. Um, but that's kind of where we're at. I'm not sure exactly what they have planned for me yet. And the other thing I'm wondering is a lot of guys end up writing follow-up books. Do you see this as like a one-and-done memoir of yours? I mean, that's the that's the way I see it. Um, what, like did you, is everything out on the table? In no, this book? no, no. There's a what? Well, there's a lot more that I could have written, and there are a lot of sentences that could have been expanded into paragraphs. A lot of paragraphs that could have been expanded into an entire page, and I cut things short for brevity. Um, there are some things I didn't write about that I could throw in there. Um, you know, other stuff that I did. Um, it just had to be cut short for the sake of brevity, you know. Um, th- it could be two books. It could have been expanded into two books, but that was that's not my intent with it. And we'll have to see what the editor thinks. But I mean, I yeah, there's enough that it could be split into two books. But I, my impression of it is that it's just going to be the one. 
I think it's exciting because of the fact that you've been writing for about a decade at this point. Getting there. You you pretty much cover news going on. You've written four fiction novels. You're not really a guy who writes that much from your perspective of what you've seen and done, other than when you do an investigative piece, like when you've been to the Philippines and that type of thing. Well, even then, it's not really from my perspective as much as it's from the perspective of the people I interview. Yeah, so uh, this is a first for you. I, is, is in a sense. I mean, at. I've written a little bit a little bit of first-person stuff um, from Syria, a little bit from Iraq. Um, I wrote about a couple operations that I was on you know, not a lot at all. Um, it's something that I, I think I avoided in a way. But, yeah, this is, it is a first. It's interesting. You know, I, I always figured in my mind, I was like, well, you know, my story is like, that could be a cool article. You know, I never saw it as a book. But when I sat down and I started writing, it's like start writing and writing and writing and writing. <laughs> and, it, and it turned out I had a lot more to say. Um, and the book is a lot more action-packed than I had anticipated. I actually did not think it would be quite as uh, slam-bang as it, as it ended up being, I think. I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, too, and I am, like, how do you find the time? You were doing this Tesla show, which yes. took up a lot of time. You're the editor-in-chief of a website. Yeah. You do this with me twice a week. I, it's probably hard to find the time to write an entire memoir. The, the TV show occupied a lot of my time, and just, like, a little background on it. The reason why I decided to do the TV show was because I knew I had signed this book deal, and I was like, well, okay, if, you, if you're going to go through all the trouble to write a book, you want it to do pretty well. And in order to do that, I need to get my name and my face out there a little bit. So I was like, oh, I'll do this TV show. Um, so doing the TV show... Um, it was, it was an experience, but it kind of screwed me because that whole time I was doing that TV show for like, what, four months or something? Yeah, it was a long time. I should have been writing the memoir. <laughs> so I finally finished. We went right, way over schedule, finally finished the television show, and now I have to sit down and write the memoir. So you didn't start it until? Until I finished. Wow. Yeah, and and it's right now it's like 70,000 words or 75,000. No, no, what is it? Seven, it's 78,000 words right now. And we'll see, there'll probably be some additions and, and things like that as we go through the editorial process. Um, but I, I got it all out, um, and I'll, we'll take it from there. But, yeah, I mean, thankfully, you know, we have a good staff at SoftRep, you know, that they, they do a great job. They don't need me micromanaging them or holding their hands. You know, the same thing with you, Ian. You don't need me here, like, directing traffic, telling you what to do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you guys have definitely helped me with that in a, in a lot of ways. Um and, uh, you know, I, I was working on investigations, you know, at, at the same time Let's, while I was working on that book. Well, I actually I was on the TV show working on um, stories about the Niger ambush. I worked on a story about the, um, the dick pick six story <laughs> uh, and then the tiger swan story. And that, those investigative pieces also tied up a lot of my time. And I was just juggling the memoir and all of this other work, you know, it's just a uh, schizophrenic all over the place. Part, part of why I'm wondering also is because we get emails from people who are like, I want to self publish a book, whether it's a memoir, mm -hmm. a novel, we get a lot of those things. So for someone who probably works like a full time job has very little free time. Like, do you give yourself a couple of hours each night or a goal of, I'm going to write this amount of words? Yeah. Um, my goal whenever I went writing this book and when I was writing my novels is really simple, really simple. Commit yourself to sitting down and writing one page a day. Just sit down 
and one page typed on your computer, which that's probably like, it depends on formatting, right? That's probably like two pages in a, in a book, maybe a little more. Um, that and means it, a book could take you a year to write, right? right? And if you just commit yourself to that, to sitting down and writing one page a day, by the end of the year, you'll have a book. No, like no, no ins and outs, no, no, I mean, that's it. It'll be done. Or at least your first draft will be done, and then you can take whatever time you need to edit it. But that's the kind of commitment I make. Now, there's other writers. For this book, you must have done more, though. I mean, you... Um, a little bit, yeah. I mean, there were some days where I sat down and I wrote, like, five pages, six pages. Because also, it's my story, so I don't have to do as much research and all that kind of stuff. I kind of, you know, it's... Does anything come to your head during the day that you're like, I need to make sure I don't... You know, like, I use... And I Brandon's talking about this, too, I think, with different stuff. Like, I use the notes feature on the uh, iPhone a lot. I know some people do the voice memo where... If there's something I need to make a mental note of, write it down in there. Like, does a story ever pop in your head and you're like, I need to make sure this is included? Yeah, there's um, there's all kinds of stuff that would pop in my head. And I just write notes to myself. And there's some notes that I, I still have that there's stories about. I, I still debate whether or not I should put in the book. Like, you want to hear, like, a funny story that I'm not, I'm, it might be too politically incorrect to put in this book? Yeah, this, <laughs> so, I, I don't think they care on this show. But, well, this was, uh, this was just one of those funny deployment stories. Uh, in 2005, I was in Iraq with Ranger Battalion, and this is no Netflix, no streaming, no nothing, okay? This is, this is over 10 years ago. You had uh, DVDs. And uh, so there, there's, like, an underground DVD exchange, and we were all trading DVDs. Uh, the whole platoon got obsessed with that TV show that was popular at the time, the OC. And like, would you don't think of a bunch of, uh, special ops guys, dude, we would go into mission briefs and guys be yelling at each other. Who the fuck has disc five? Who the fuck has disc five? And other guys like, Oh, that girl, Marissa, she's a whore, Ah," you know, screaming at each other. And then people would be like defending her and like, Oh, I like this guy. I don't like that guy. There'd be like, these like upsets, you know, in the briefing room. Um, but then, so you're constantly looking around for DVDs and things, so like something to watch when you're not working. And uh, my squad leader comes into me, and he knew that a private in our platoon had like a whole, one of those whole foot books full of DVDs in it. And he went to him and was like, hey, dude, what, what do you got for us to watch? And, uh, and so he comes up to my squad, and he's like, Sergeant, I have these DVDs for you to watch. And he hands him the, like a handful of DVDs, and me and and me and my squad leader are looking at these, and it's like uh, Japanese animation stuff. And we're like, what the fuck is this? I'm like, okay, well, whatever. That's and, uh, uh, the Odysseans realm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, uh, we take one of these DVDs, and we put it in the DVD player in our barracks room, and, and it's like a little Connex container we live in called a Chew. Throw it in there, and I'm, <laughs> my squad leader's laying in his bed, and I was one of the team leaders, and we're sitting there watching this thing on this little, like, TV screen, and uh, it's an anime about this girl who has this big demon tattoo on her back. And uh, she goes walking around, and it's like one of these things where, like, she's always getting in these precarious situations where, like, she goes into the park and gets, like, surrounded by, like, five or six thugs. And, you know, it's pretty clear they're going to, like, rob her and rape her and, like, all kinds of horrible stuff is going to happen. But every time she gets into one of these situations, the demon tattoo on her back comes alive, comes off her back, turns into this huge demon, and starts ass-raping all the dudes that were going to attack her. And it's like, you know, that Dragon Ball Z style animation. And me and my squad leader are watching this like, holy fuck. (laughs) 
like, holy shit. And uh, as we're watching this, like, what, like, thinking, like, what in the world are we watching? Suddenly the door flies open, clunk, and like, hits against the back of the door. And there, standing, I'd see a silhouette in the doorway at night is my platoon sergeant, Jared Van Allist. <laughs> and me and my squad leader just look at each other and start laughing. And uh, Van Allist walks around <laughs> to see what we're watching on the TV. He's like, what the hell are you two watching? And he watches it for like 30 seconds and he's like, what the fuck is wrong with you two? <laughs> <laughs> and how do you explain that away? Yeah, yeah, it is exactly. Me, we both knew we'd been, uh, oh, you should edit that name out. Uh, me and me and my squad leader, we, uh, <laughs> we both just turned to each other. We knew we'd be caught red-handed watching this bizarro uh, Japanese animation. It's just like, oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> that's great. But that's one of those things. I have, like, a notes written down in a notepad, like, ah, should I put this story in the book or not? So that's not uh, included. Right now, no, it's not. Um, there are some other stories. There are definitely some other funny stories in there. Um about like, you know, raiding the chow hall and having huge plastic bags full of Red Bulls we took out of the freezer. Um, all kinds of goofy stuff that happened. Just funny stuff. Um, but no, the, the anime story is not in there. It, I don't know if that, that might not be like too kosher in this day and age, you know? Yeah. But then again, there's all kinds of other stuff in there that's not exactly politically correct. I mean, I write about like terrorists we killed and how I was like laughing about it and there's like flies crawling across their eyeballs. And at the end of the day, the audience for these books does not, they don't read memoirs of special ops guys for a PC book. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't write it. um, Certainly, it's not PC. I didn't write it to be PC, but also like palatable to bigger audience. Not not even that. It's like just to thinking about, okay, how important is this story about the anime DVDs? Yeah, I I personally think it's, it's funny. It's a memory of mine and I look back on it and I laugh, but does the audience, does the reader really give a shit? Are they going to think it's as funny as I do? I think and it's funny, Is it yeah. going to be worth, you know, re- re- uh, writing and, and them reading in a book? Um, but, yeah, there's other stuff in there. I mean, the, I think the depictions of war are pretty stark and okay. frank, you know. Well, Murphy's Law, pick it up. Excited to uh, see it out there. And, and pre-orders matter, so... The publisher really does like when they see a lot of pre-orders. So yeah, you guys absolutely. Get on that. Yeah, if you guys jump in there and give it a pre-order, I really appreciate that. And um, you know, like I said, we're still um, editing the book. I'm going to try to make this thing as good as it can possibly be. And um, I hope people, you know, really enjoy reading it. Good shit. All right. Well, with that, back on the show, George Hand and. Part of the reason that I feel we're having George back on is after having your teammate Pat McNamara on the show, it, it just kind of sparked the idea, I think, for Jack and I. Of, like We've never gotten a chance to hear all these awesome stories from George's perspective. Whenever you're on, we talk about what you're up to now with human trafficking. So I, I just think it would be worth yeah. it to get into a, a full episode on like the origin of George Hand and, and you know being a part of, of Delta Force. That that's fine. It's it's actually uh, starting to put me to sleep already. But, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. I think you know you, you salt it with uh, Pat McNamara. It's probably going to be interesting either way you look at it. Pat was awesome. So I I guess the natural way to start this interview I, I would think would just be your background growing up and and being a part of Delta Force. And if I'm correct here, you 
you made the decision to join the army, right? This was this was a few years after there was well, yeah, a mandatory draft. George, yeah, George, uh, he started off in, in first group too. So we kind of like we have to back up way yeah, back let's, before let's go before we get there. Yeah, well, let's go from growing up all the way up to that. I think would be cool, right? Yeah, if you're willing, uh, George. Uh, sure. Well, I, I mean, you know, just with respect to the army part, um, uh, I re- I wrote in a story recently. Um, I've got a few backed up in the queue, but I think I think this one has already come out. But I had made mention of the fact that I can remember as far back as five years old wanting to be in the army. You know, like that's that's what I wanted to do. You know, I'm, I got to do that. I got to do that thing. And um, you know, I mean, the the depth of my knowledge of the army was basically just you know a guy wearing a uniform holding a rifle, and that was the extent of it. You know, I had no idea about the the rest of it, about the you know the 99 percent uh, crap that goes along with it and boredom. But I knew I wanted to do that, and uh, all the way up to by the time I was like at about 19 years old or so, um, you know, I was I was talking about going into the Air Force because my dad was a career Air Force guy, um, and I was trying to make it sound a little bit more palatable to my to my folks uh, and to myself. You know, it's it like, well, I don't want to be a grunt, <clears throat> or I actually do want to be a grunt. I want to be an infantry soldier and carry a rifle and dig a foxhole and eat in the chow hall and all that stuff. But it just didn't seem like, uh, ambitious enough to tell people about. So, but when the air force was, when it came right down to it, it was like, yeah, I went to the recruiter's office and sat down with him and he started throwing out all the things that I was qualified to do. And I picked combat engineer like Buck Clay. I mean, that guy's a 12 Bravo combat engineer. I said, yeah, I want to do this combat engineer thing because it's got combat in the front and then it's got engineers. So <laughs> there's actually a skill set involved there. Um, you know, and, and my parents would probably like that better. And the guy looked at me and said, well, you know, we don't have anything open for combat engineers right now. We're just all full, you know, yank, yank. Right, Jack. Uh, and he goes, but we are wide open for the infantry. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm an idiot at this time. I'm like, really? No kidding. No combat engineers. But infantry's open. Well, shit. I guess I'll take that. And so they signed me up. Got and, another you know, one. Uh, yeah, I got another one, man. They could fill the infantry all day with guys <laughs> like me. But, but I was, you know, like yes, yes. You know, little did I know. So, but that's that's how it went down. And um, and I was only in for two years. I took the shortest amount of time possible in case I just absolutely hated it. Um, and and I, I I really did I pretty much absolutely hated it, <laughs> just because of the the culture at the time you know it was like there was nothing going on in the world there was no wars, the the uh, the the infantry in particular was swelled with guys that were forced in there uh, through courts the court system oh jeez you know the the judges would you know here's a guy he did all this petty thievery or, or whatever crimes drugs blah 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 misdemeanor stuff not not like federal stuff or you know uh and they would give him the choice so it's like son you can go in you can go to jail or you can go in the army and that's almost a coin flip if you ask me <laughs> it's like they're kind of the same ain't they but no but but it was filled with those guys and they they didn't want to have anything to do with you know being soldiers it was it was uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna dwell on it but it it pretty much sucked so and I, I started looking at my my options for getting out, uh, or for getting out of at least getting out of the the infantry, 
because it was that was the worst. It was just the worst. Well, maybe MPs was worse than that, but the infantry was pretty bad. And uh, and I said, well, I, I came to learn that if I went to jump school, all these things that I wanted to do, like rangers, you know, which I couldn't even fathom rangers. I thought that was just too difficult for me, you know. But but green berets, uh, somehow I got myself wrapped around that axle, thinking I could try that. But everything was, you know, uh, everything was precluded to me because of jump school, because I have a clinical fear of heights, you know. Um, so that was so out of the question. But, you know, after two years of being in that, that environment, um, I was ready to jump without a parachute, man. I'm like, just, I got to get out of here, you know. So I signed up and went, uh, sucked up jump school and, um, you know, went to, I, I took 25 guys uh, because I was an E4 corporal at the time. I took 25 guys from jump school and we went by bus to Fort Bragg to start SFQC and um, the, the Special Forces uh, Qualification Course. And at the end of that uh, five, six months that we were there, uh, there was me and there was one other guy, private, that was that was left from that group. Wow. Everybody else had fallen by the wayside. In fact, one of the guys, he, he quit on the bus ride to Fort Bragg. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, we were... I was sitting in the back of the bus, you know, so I could keep an eye on my men. And uh, every one of them was wearing, a, was wearing a green beret without a flash on because they, because they could. And I, and I was wearing a garrison cap. I'm like, I'm not going to wear I'm not wearing that beret. Dude, there's no way I'm going to wear that beret without being qualified. So I sat in the back of the bus, and we stopped at it like a, uh, a Denny's so the guys could get, get lunch. And some dude comes walking back and says, Corporal Hand, I wish to terminate. And I said, hey, could you wait till we get to Bragg at least? <laughs> I don't know how to do the paperwork, you know, from the bus. But, yeah, I had guys terminating just on the ride over there. And, and um, yeah, so just me and one other private made it. And I went to seventh group, and then I hated that uh, quite a bit. But it was definitely a, a step way up from being in the infantry but but again, you know, it was like yeah, I was in seventh group, and our area of operation was uh, you know, like going to Korea uh, several times a year, and a little bit of South America. Oh, because this was when first group had been deactivated. Yeah, they were not even activated yet. Um, right. Okay. So seventh yeah. group had to cover down on Asia. Yeah. So I was, and, and they did cover down on Asia. I mean, they were really they were only going to full eagle, and I know. I know Jack knows what that exercise is. It's kind of a special operations uh, joint exercise in Korea once a year, like around November time frame. And uh, uh, 7th would do that. But other than that, they were, they were just uh, busying themselves with uh, South America. So I you know, went to Panama and some other spots there. But, but the rumor was that first group was opening up and that their areas of operation, you know, Southeast Asia and, and so forth, and I, you know, I came into the army already speaking uh, Chinese. I spoke Cantonese, basically, uh, not Mandarin at that point, not quite. And, and you, um, you grew up said, wow, speaking got... some French too, didn't you? Yeah, my yeah. When I was a kid, um, basically, my grand from my grand my mother's side, her parents. Her, um, I screwed that up. It's my dad's side. His his mother only spoke uh, uh, Cajun French. For the for her entire her entire life, so 
he spoke French until he was five and started going to school. Then he had to knock it off. And uh, <laughs> same thing with me. It's like when I went to school, you know, it, it just kind of slipped away. Um, but it was a little bit more harsh environment when he went, went to school. It was like you would get punished. Yeah. Yeah. Literally get punished for speaking French. And it wasn't, I mean, there, there just wasn't anybody else speaking French in school. Uh, uh, so, but he tried to pick it back up as a, as a man, like basically he was going to school when he was still in the air force and he, he took French. He figured he could make a, a quick a and, and pick the language back up again. He ended up dropping it completely. It was just too hard. I'm like, oh, that's, that's bizarre. Uh, but, and I, I was able to pick it back up again, uh, really easily, very easily. In fact, well, but, uh, can you tell us then how you learn Chinese? Because I mean, you have an ear for languages. <laughs> I, uh, oh, I, I suppose I do. I'm not. I'm not. I'm still not convinced about that yet. But uh, I, I got a job. I just somehow got a gig from a from a guy that was uh, in high school with me, and I was 13 years old at the time. And uh, for, somehow I'd gotten uh, latched onto Chinese writing. You know, I was like, that's fascinating. That's unbelievable. You know, it's it's the hardest thing in the world, as far as I know, to learn. So I'm going to try to learn it. So I would, uh, I did it for like a summer. I got a book from a library, and I was just practicing every freaking day. And um, I got to where I could write several hundred, you know, characters, and that was great. But this this guy was working at the the one and only Chinese restaurant in town. He was, a, you know, washing dishes, and he was fixing to uh, – he was fixing to, to drop school, to drop out and go race off to California and do whatever. And um, so he was going to leave that job. And he, him and I had shop class together, and he would see me scribbling on this paper. He'd go, hey, what the hell's that shit? And I was like, oh, it's nothing. It's just, just trying to sharpen my, the lead of my pencil, you know. <laughs> and he, but he saw that, and um, it just, he just put the two together. He goes, hey, I'm dropping out, man. I'm leaving, like, next week. You want my job? I was like, job? Yeah, I'll take a job. And I, he said it was at the restaurant. I was like, holy crap. You know, I'm like, you're kidding. You know, so I'm going to, so I went there and interviewed with the boss and uh, just started working there. And I, you know, I kept practicing at, at the restaurant and the boss and the cooks, they would look at me and they would just kind of uh, roll their eyes or, or laugh, whatever. And I, but I just kept at it, kept at it. And, uh, Remember one day the the back door rang the buzz that we had a buzzer back there, and I you know the dishwasher answers the door so I ran back there and and it was police they were there to, to uh, interview some of us about uh, uh, break-ins of cars in our parking lot you know so I was like oh yeah let me just a second I ran up to the boss the cook and I told him in Chinese I said hey there's the police are at the back door. And he just looked at me, you know, he took a cigarette out of his mouth and looked at me for a second. And then he walked to the back door, but he was looking at me the whole time he walked to the back door. <laughs> and that, anyway, that was over. And he came up to me again. He came up to me and he goes, hey, boy, they called me boy. He said, boy, what did you say? I go, what do you mean? Because what did you say when you came in from the back door? And I said, well, I said the police were here. He goes, no, 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 you said it in Chinese. Let me hear you say it again. And I said, so I said it to him, you know, and he goes, and he corrected it, right? He goes, okay, listen here. This word, and he, he went word by word and he corrected me. And from that point, 
basically he was they they were taking me serious. So instead of rolling their eyes, you know, and whatever, it's like the, every chance they got, you know, they would hold shit up, you know, and say it in Chinese, and I would repeat it. And uh, every night after work, the boss would, you know, take the cash register and he start he start tallying up the uh, receipts for the day, watching TV, smoking cigarettes, and I would sit <laughs> behind him with my books and I would read out loud. And, you know, I would go on and on, and I think he's, you know, he, this guy ain't listening to me. He's doing math, and he's watching TV, and he's sucking on a cigarette. But he would hold his hand up every now and then, stop and say, repeat that. And then, so I'd go back and repeat it. So the, the, so he actually was listening to me. And I did that for, we did that for like, you know, five, I worked there for five years, basically. And wow. when I got out and went straight into the Army, um, I was, you know, I didn't know how well I could read, write, and speak, but it kind of just uh, it was something I kept secret because nobody wanted to hear about it in the in the mil- in the infantry. You know, they didn't. I mean, they didn't want to hear about it. No one cared. But when I got to group, it was a different story. You know, They're, I was like, hey, I I went and took the uh, the DLPT mm-hmm. for it and it scored really high, and um, I said, yeah, I want to. You know, I want to go to first group and uh, because they have. They have Chinese speakers there. They need that language. And that's what I ended up. That's how I got to first group. That's awesome. Yeah, to get away from seventh group. And because, you know, they had an area of responsibility that piqued my interest. Um, And I thought I could do, you know, all these great things by having uh, Chinese already. You know, they didn't have to send me away to DLI for a year, basically, I guess is what that is. Um. Yeah, but anyway, so I was there with Chinese, never did anything with it because all we did was go to uh, Korea, basically. Yeah, you had told me once about the, the rivalry, I guess you could say, because there was one battalion and first group that got to go to Thailand, and then there was your battalion that got to go to Korea and Alaska. So Jack, you have a good memory, man. That is exactly right. I mean, the... I was in the second battalion, and uh, Pat McNamara was in third battalion, the Good Deal Boys, and Mac went to Thailand and uh, <laughs> Philippines. Uh, you know, they they got to go to all the the Good Deal places, and and I and we were just yeah going to Korea. That was it, and Alaska, and uh, even we uh, living in Washington State. And I think Jack, you were second seventy fifth, right? Uh, no, I was, th- I was I was three seven five. You three seven five. Well, Washington State. I mean, the uh, the ski areas and the mountains and the snow are all year round. Yeah, uh, not a very long drive, and so we ended up getting sent, uh, you know, just slightly north to mess around in the snow and uh, practice our skiing and that sort of thing. But when me and Mac would, you know, uh, catch each other coming and going, you know, we'd get together and Mac would tell me stories about what he did in Thailand and he throw some Thai phrases out at me and. And I'd be jealous as hell, you know. And, <laughs> yeah, it, and it was great, but but we hardly saw each other because just because of the op tempo and the different areas. Um, yeah, me and Mac like never saw each other. Not until we like years later, we just you know dumb luck. Me and Mac showed up, you know, in Delta tr- uh, selection together. It was like holy shit! Look at you. It was like, <laughs> Bam, George, where you been? I was like, I don't know. Mac, you look great. You know, so we went through that together. We made it. That was his second time. Yeah, his second time. He, like, rolled an ankle really bad his first time around. But he was right back in the saddle as quick as he could. And we got to um, 
we got to go to selection together, and, and it was really great. It was really, really great having Mac there. To see a familiar face. You know? Yeah, see, we hung out all the time, you know, all the, all the freaking time. Went to, went to meals every day, uh, kept each other really entertained, and, you know, basically caught up. Uh, and and we we both made it. So uh, we ended up at what at uh, going to Bra- back to Bragg, but he lived in uh, ah dang it, he lived out towards Sanford, you know, away from Fayetteville, way away from Fayetteville. And me and my wife at the time were looking, you know, we were looking for a house, and uh, we you know we stopped at Max to visit him one day, and he's mentioned a house. You know, there's a place for sale right up the road here. We went and looked at it, and my missus fell in love with it. It was like a cedar, built out of cedar, you know? And uh, it was like nothing else would do. And I go, oh, you sure you want to live, like, just right down the street from somebody we know? She's like, that isn't, you know, that's a good thing. I'm like, yeah, okay, I I don't know any better. I just didn't know any better. So we ended up living, like, down the freaking street from Mac. (laughs) And, And it was great. You know, 10 years, it was fantastic because, I mean, again, you know, Max, he's in Bravo. He's in the, the, the unit would not put me and Mac in the same squadron because there was three of us that hung out in OTC a little bit too much, I guess. And yeah. They, broke, they told us about it. They go, hey, you know, you guys, they broke us up in the end and put us, one of us each in three different squadrons. Because the Army, they get afraid that you're going to create like your own little mafia inside the unit, don't they? They do, man. I, they really do, and they were calling us like the three amigos. Like, oh, they do the same. Up. They do the same with like platoon sergeants and ranger battalion. Like, make sure they're not in the same company just because they know each other too well. You know, I. That's pretty. Uh, you know, I never really uh, molded over um, as much as I could have probably, but that is. I absolutely agree with that. Um, it's like, yeah, when I look back at it, like they had to break us up, man, for Christ's sake. They had to. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I would have liked to have been in a squadron with Mac, but it just didn't work out that way. I mean, he's right across the freaking hall. Uh, you know, but there, there again, it, it's different op tempos. You know, like we're on alert different time than they are, so they're out traveling and we're just hanging out at headquarters. But but it was not at all like it was back in, in uh, first group. It was... Like, I could see the guy just about every day, you know? And since we lived, like, right down the street from each other, um, his wife at the time was gone a lot. She was, like, almost never there. So, um, you know, I I gave Mac an open-ended invitation. I said, hey, Mac, you know the deal, man. Dinner's at 7 at our place. You know, that's just all I got to say. So he would would show up, you know, now and then. He would just show up for uh, dinner and... And it, and it was great, you know. It's like every every time we did meet, we had something new to to talk about. And that, that guy's hobbies were insane. You know, I'd go look <laughs> at stuff. I'm like, Mac, what in the fuck is that in your backyard? He goes, well, you know, he's he's always got something going on. Like he built a and he built an archery range in his backyard, diag from a one diagonal corner to the other, because that gave him exactly whatever he he measured it out. It gave him like a 33-meter shot or something. Then he had these hay bales stacked up in that corner, and he would stand back in the opposing corner with a compound bow. And right over the fence is the street, you know, cars going back and forth. And he's got this bow bent back, and he's like (laughs) letting these arrows fly (laughs) over his dog's head. And he's he's like, he's not missing, you know. I'm like, 
You, know, you, yeah, you have your hobbies too, George. Isn't uh, aren't you a big woodworker? Yeah, Jack. I uh, I am. I ordered some. I, I've been building a wood shop here for about the last four months. That's now. great. Put, putting it together. I mean, I, I lost it all when I in my divorce. I lost everything. I started putting it back together. Uh, my daughter's really supported me a lot on it, and uh, I actually ordered my first uh, uh, lot of hardwood, red oak hardwood. Mm-hmm. I tried to order it this week, and it's coming out of Michigan, and the the freight charge is going to be more than the wood cost. I so, I, I said I can't I can't stomach that, man. I, I I do have children that I'm you know supporting, <laughs> so I can't. There's not I can't do that. But I, I am a woodworker. Uh, I had a shop when I was in Delta. Uh, I would, I would was insane the way I worked in that shop. I mean, I would get up in the morning, you know, put on my blue coveralls, and I'd watch the the, the clock. When the clock struck ten hundred hours, you know, I, to me that was that was the witching hour. Like that was the time that it was okay to make noise in my neighborhood, you know, <laughs> and, and people couldn't call the police on me because it was like six like a quarter after six and I'm running a, a bandsaw, you know, they couldn't do that. It, so 10 hundred hours, you know, the shit was on, you know, I'd, I'd throw the lever, fire up the machines and I would stay out there, you know, just stay out there. And I would piss in a bottle. I had a big old jar, wide mouth jar in the corner. And I would piss in that because I didn't want to take the time to go indoors and, you know, drag a bunch of sawdust in there or take time to strip out of my coveralls. So I would just pee in this bottle all freaking day long. And uh, my wife would, she'd like crack the door open to the garage and like shove a plate out, you know, like in a prison or something, <laughs> you know, with bread on it. She wouldn't come out there, you know. She'd just slide it out there and I would see it like, whoa. And I'd go over there and I'd just stand there and, and eat it, you know, with my hands. And like, oh, I've had enough, man. I've had enough. And just lay the plate back down. I'm, I'm good to go. I can burn another, you know, uh, 5.6 hours, you know, on those carbs. And uh, I would have like three pieces of furniture at, at a time that I was building. And then I think it was around 2,000 at night, you know, I would, I'd throw the lever back down, you know, cut the power to the garage and, uh, you know, back out of the shop and do it all again the next day. What were, so, uh, and, uh, what were I, some of your favorite things to build? I did, I did exclude, uh, exclusively uh, cabinet grade uh, hardwood furniture mm-hmm. is what I did. And I, I did only one piece that was uh, outdoor. It was a, it was a, a porch. Uh, it was, it was a, it's, I think it's called a glide bench. It's a glide. It's basically a, a bench. You sit in it and it sits in a, it sits in a, in a, oh shit. It's basically hanging from four wood hangers. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Sit in it. Yeah. When you sit in it, it it's, it's like a, it'll swing back and forth. Right. Right. You know. And and I built that, and uh, I varnished the the hell out of it, trying to you know make it last as long as possible. It lasted a few years, but um, you know the elements definitely got got hold of it finally, and uh, you know started stripping up pieces of the wood. But I continued that. Um, Built a shop when I moved to Las Vegas after I got out of the army, and I did, I did the same the same pace, man. I was just going at it, going at it, and we had a swimming pool in the backyard. At the end of the day, I would just walk to the backyard and I would jump in the pool, you know. <laughs> George and is just, also you know, a great like uh, 
great I, photographer I as well. I to the bottom, and I, I do the twist, you know, for like 30 seconds, then I'd get out of the pool, and I was clean. You know, all the sawdust was gone, and I'd hang those coveralls, let them dry, and I'd go in the house, and it'd be over for the day, then nice. just do it again the next day. I, I would say you're also a, a great photographer as well. I know that's another big hobby of yours. I I appreciate that compliment. Uh, I I actually have come to uh, to be able to receive compliments for my photography. I just finally decided, like, you know, they're right. This is good. I'm doing pretty good stuff <laughs> no, here. Some of it's stellar, yeah. Yeah, I go, yeah, this is this stuff's good. I mean, and I, I mean, my dad was a photographer, and he would take me. He 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 actually he got me a, a piece of crap camera, you know, a film camera. And um, he, he told me a few things like, you know, George, don't take pictures facing into the sun and uh, just some basic stuff. Uh, and I sh- shot like a couple of rolls of black and white. No big deal. And he developed his own film in his in his shed. He took me in there and, you know, would stick me in a corner, say, don't move. Don't touch anything. Don't say anything. And I'm like, well, it's really great to be here. You know, it's great being I, I feel like I'm really participating uh, and I and I he would uh, develop his film and not say a word. And I kind of could see what he was doing. He's, you know, he's turning the machine on, exposing this paper. Then he's running it through these three different chemicals. And um, Jack, you went to O and I, did you not? No, no, I didn't. You didn't go to O and I. Well, they when I went through, I was like one of the very last classes that ever went to that course. And um, we we actually had to do wet photography, and it it was pretty pretty damn cool. So we passed the paper through, you know, the developer, the stop bath, and the fixer. But he would do that, and I would just sit there. And, um, of course, he would have his uh, soft red light on. And I remember sitting in the back one day, and my back, or sitting in the corner there, the lights are off, and he's developing some film. And I, my back was itching, and I started rubbing up against the wall. And, and there was something sticking out on the wall that was just perfect right at my back. And I'm like, oh, this is great. And, I, and it was the light switch. <laughs> And I rubbed up on it, and it turned the freaking light on. Mm. And he turned around, looked at me like, what in the fuck? You know, it was like the one thing you could have done <laughs> to ruin everything, and you did it. So I was outside there for the rest of the day, you know, like <laughs> kicking a can and hitting shit with a stick. So, But um, when I did pick up photography again, it was because my, it was in Las Vegas. My family got me a camera for Christmas. And I was looked at it, and um, I was like, my God, this is like way more camera than I would have ever considered buying for myself, you know? I said, I don't. This is too much for me. I I, I want to take it back. And so I was kind of struggling with the, uh, taking it back, returning it. Like, how would that look to the family? And, and so I, I ended up making the right choice, which was to, well, here it is, man. Just make the best of it. So I just dug into it and started reading, uh, really started shooting a hell of a lot of pictures. My kids were in sports, so that was the ticket, was to go, you know, to the practices and the games and start shooting that. You know, I said, well, that, that's, that's, a, that's a subject, so I'll go, I'll go shoot that. So I ended up, you know, doing a lot of shooting and uh, a lot of all the kids on the team, and I started pushing – the photos on like a team Facebook page and the parents and the kids were going nuts. The parents were going crazy, like, wow. And the kids were feeling like rock stars, you know, because, 
you know, I, I, I make people look good. That's what I do. If you, even if you don't look good, I'll make you look good <laughs> in the photography. I'll, I'll get a good flattering shot. Uh, you know, I'll, that, I'll take that 25% and put it on my machine in the uh, post-shoot edit and do the other 75%, you know, in the, uh, on the editing computer and come up with some really, some really great products. And, you know, I pushed those out to the Facebook page. I made uh, team posters. These things are like uh, eight, eight feet by four feet, you know, wow. a full sheet of plywood Massive. in size. And, it, and I would do that for them, you know, basically have a, a photo shoot day, shoot all the kids. Um, <laughs> it sounds funny. Then I'd go, you know, for about a week and I would build this photo product, you know, put all the kids in one at a time in their best pose. Then I'd put a crazy background there and do whatever. Then I would take that down uh, downtown to a Photoshop and they would print it out on a big sheet of, uh, you know, like uh, vinyl is what it was. And they'd photo print it out on vinyl and they'd sink rivets in the corners. And then the, the kids would take that banner to all their games and they would string it up on the backstop. That's cool, man. And uh, people would just like crowd around it. You and, you and Pat, you, you and Pat, I was going to say, seem to have like a similar philosophy in that, you know, you just have to have all these different interests in life and, and live to the fullest. I think, you know, with him, with his bird watching and heavy metal and everything else he's into art and all that good stuff. Yeah. I, I, George, yeah. I just want to get back into some of the army stuff. Cause I know that people are going to want to hear more yeah. about this. No, no it's cool. Cause I, I like hearing about that as well. Um, I'm wondering which deployment stands out for you the most. Uh, from, from which unit, uh, Ian? Any of them, I think. Uh, you know, I have, I have to, I have to say it was Somalia, man. That, that was, uh, that, that really, that really does stand out. I mean, everything else was, uh, I mean, every time I did something with Delta, it was, it was like, wow, you know, looking, especially looking back at it, like, holy crap, you know, like my, my whole career in my whole eight years in, group i never touched anything like that and this was just one typical deployment with delta um but it was definitely somalia and um uh columbia because i went i went to columbia for i was there for nine months you know uh doing doing the counter uh we were hunting the cartels what we were doing the drug cartel the the incumbents at the time the guys that took over power it filled the power void when Pablo Escobar got got taken out by by uh, Colombian uh, commandos with, with the assistance of of uh, Delta and their Tutledge. But when that when he got killed, you know, there was the power void was there, and the the Orjuela brothers filled that void, and they they took power and they took it from the Medellin uh, from Medellin, and they established it in uh, Santiago de Cali. Uh, hold and, on, George. Uh, we'll hold on just one second because they're testing the fire alarm system in here. Yeah, I don't think it'll be that loud though, because we hear. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go there. ahead, George. But that, so, but that was an impressive uh, deployment. My my Bosnia deployments. I, I have another right about nine months total uh, in three different iterations um, of of uh, of work in Bosnia. Uh, what, Two of them were the, were the were hunting the uh, war crimes, war criminals, 
and one of the deployments was a, a personal security detail for the commanding general in country. Uh, those were those were great. I mean, uh, I, I left Bosnia um, and was and took a deal DLI exam. Like within the first week, I got back home permanently, and I was able to test out of uh, Serbo-Croatian language. Um, you know, at a, at a high enough level to receive pay, but uh, but I didn't need I didn't need that because I was already getting the max amount for Cantonese Chinese. You know, um, but but Somalia was the was the shit because I mean you know it, it, it's just the way it went down. You know, I mean our C squadron was over there. Uh, they were they were uh, buttonheads with ID. They were kicking ass. Uh, occasionally a dude would come back for some reason, like one of the guys, his wife was, was losing her mind. So he had to come back, take care of that for a few days, uh, and went back over. But while he was back, you know, we pulled him into our, our crisis lounge and he talked to us for about an hour, you know, about what they were doing, how they were doing it, this, that, whatever. And, um, then, you know, then the Blackhawk incident happened and we, we just, you know, we got, the the full up alert on our pagers, you know, crowded in. The old man, he he uh, he read off. A, this is kind of I, I. This is a little bit questionable if he asked me. This guy had no. I don't know his his skills, his social skills sometimes, but he basically had us in a, in a room and showed us some film of Mike Durant, right, mm-hmm. uh, being interviewed. You know, his face is all beat up and he's bleeding and he's uh, saying some really canned statements that are pretty generic, you know, and then they're showing Bill Cleveland being drugged through the street by all, all these fuckers. Um, and, you know, just some, some really rank ass video. And so we're, we're sitting there taking that in like, Oh, this is, this is great. You know? And, and then, then he reads off a list of all the dead guys, you know, <laughs> He reads off the list of the guys that are dead, like you know, all our, our, our buds. Um, and then he read off a list of the wounded guys, uh, some of which were from my own OTC class, you know. So I'm already jonesing a little bit, not liking how he, he did this. Um, and he, he basically goes, you know, that's it for right now. Everybody report back, you know, at 2,200 hours tonight. So we went about our wow. day. Um, and we knew, we knew we were going to have to shave our heads because we were going to go as, as Rangers. Right. And I, and I thought, yeah, that's, you know, all this, this cover and, uh, clandestine <laughs> undercover training we get and they were going to go as Rangers. That's great. That's great. But some of the guys ran out and got haircuts. Um, I, we, I, we showed up at 2200 hours and, um, pulled out clippers and guys just shaved our heads right there in the, in the, cl- the, the lounge. Um, and, and I was still fairly new to the unit and I did not even recognize some of the guys when they shaved their heads. You know, I was like, oh, oh, what squadron is he in? Oh, that's uh, that's one of our snipers. Yeah. And, uh, Matt, funny cause Matt Ryerson, when he shaved his head, he looked exactly like, you know, I've always remembered him. Uh, Matt died in Somalia, but he, cause when I knew him, it was in dive school and he was coming from, uh, Washington state section, second 75th Rangers. So he, I've always known him ha- having a high and tight haircut. And, um, 
course, when he's in Delta, he let his hair grow out and had this huge musta- handlebar mustache. But when he shaved off for Somalia, I was like, oh, it's Matt Ryerson again. Look at that. Um, yeah, so we, you know, it was, and, and we, we did that, shaved our heads, grabbed some chow, and uh, took a C5 basically from, from Washington State to Egypt. And the C5 landed in Egypt for several hours, too many hours, actually, because guys were getting in fights, you know. Really? Because <laughs> we, were, we were shoved in a PAX terminal tent, and we weren't, we weren't uh, isolated off like we should have been. So there were some Air Force people coming in there, and there was like a, there was like a snack line set up in there. And so we're standing in line, and there's some Air Force guys standing in line with us and uh one of them didn't have one of them was off duty and he had an earring he was wearing an earring and that set off that set off one of the guys in my squadron he had to go up there and next thing you know man you know tables are turning over and <laughs> it's like and the, the the old man couldn't believe it it's like my god you know it's like we just got here you know it's like well what are you gonna do i mean you you brought them in to fight, uh, and now you're mad because they're getting in fights. It's just, come on, you know this will all be over soon, sir. We're gonna leave, <laughs> and so we did get out of there, and uh, we landed in we landed in Mogadishu Airport, and you know, you know, got off the back just just like an old Vietnam movie. You know, they open up the back door, and you're hit with this heat wave, slaps you in the face. And we walked right off of the ramp, literally walked off the ramp, and there's dudes out there, you know, hurting us, corralling us over. And they brought us up to a, a, a an ongoing memorial ceremony. Oh, wow. So we walked right into the ceremony, you know, you know, stuck our, our weapons, you know, behind us, slung them behind us, stood at attention in formation. You know, they had rows of uh, freaking boots and rifles stuck in the ground and helmets on it. And um, the old man, you know, said some words. Bill Garrison, uh, General Garrison, said he spoke very well. He he said some really great things, man. Uh, and uh, then the the sergeant major said some things, and it was just sounded stupid. And I, you know, I was really disappointed in him. But you know, so that we did that. We had that ceremony for the guys that had died. You know, just hours earlier and uh you you know we just kind of dug into our place we were going to stay the sea squadron was in a hangar that had overhead cover and the ranger their rangers were there we picked a terminal building that was unfinished it had had a had a roof on it but it had no walls 360 degrees there were no walls it was like a huge concrete pavilion open air yeah open yeah so we took our rangers went in there and set up shop hey we got mortared that night mm. and you know we had no we had no we had no cover so you were and, teamed uh, up you guys were teamed up with so you're the guys that came in you were with a squadron and you must have gotten teamed up with probably my old company aco from 375 i think it was aco man yeah i really do and we hit you know, we had our Rangers right in the terminal with us, uh, and and it was pretty it was pretty cool. Um, but you know, when the mortars came, you know, we had something had to be done. So um, Red Red Horse, I hope I'm saying that right. The Air Force uh, Red Horse Division 
came in and, you know, they have heavy equipment, you know, they, they do it all. Heavy construction is what they do. And, um, they had a crane and they found these huge concrete slabs, huge. They're like two stories high rectangular you know, they were in a pile way off somewhere. And they picked these damn things up one at a time. And they leaned them up against the, uh, the pavilion all the way around it, you know, well on three sides, actually the side against facing the city, which was like one street away and a barbed wire fence. And then on two sides, and on the, the side facing away from the city, they sandbagged it up, like basically up over your head, about that high. And then they put heavy plastic, heavy clear plastic to seal it all the way around and um, finished it off by shoving a bunch of AC units, you know, with these big-ass hoses, and they stuck them through the plastic. So we had, we had cover and shield from the elements, and uh, it was actually cool in there. So I admit that we had it pretty freaking nice. I mean, I, I wasn't complaining because the few days when we didn't have it, it was it was almost unbearable, man. Because the the tarmac was was right there, and every, every single minute of every day, there were C-130s with their engines full revved, exhaust was blowing back through our pavilion all the time. It was just gassing guys out. I mean, we had like yeah. t-shirts over our face, you know, wrapped around our mouths and nose, trying to breathe it. And Blackhawks were, had their blades turning all the time for alert. Russian freaking uh, Antonov, well, AN-112, I guess is what they are. It's like their equivalent. Big, big, like, yeah, it's, yep, big transport. Monsters, way louder than our C-5s ever were, way louder. I don't understand what their, the difference between their hydraulics and ours but those things were so freaking loud, and it, that was all day long. It was just just wearing us out. So when these guys built that cover, man, all that stuff just kind of died off, and it was it was like life was good, you know. So what were you guys doing, and uh, what happened in in Somalia after that? I mean, you guys were the reinforcements that showed up after Gothic Serpent went sideways. Yeah, exactly. Exactly went sideways, and. Um, the, the plan of attack changed a bit. Like, C Squadron didn't want anything to do with their uh, Ranger counterpart. I mean, that wasn't going to happen. So Yeah, the, yeah the I remember re- reading that they felt that some of the leadership in, in the Ranger Battalion hadn't handled it so well. Yeah, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm just glad not to have been a part of that. So it's kind of great not having an opinion in that regard, I, I should say, but, but I do know that they were wrote those guys out of the assault plans and we were in the assault plans. So we were going to, we're going to rotate back and forth with C. I mean, C was still going to go in, uh, initially go in on the objectives. We were going to block, we were going to uh, provide the 360 blocking force. And then we'd swap that out, you know, next mission, then we would go in and they would provide the blocking force. And that was, and I'm like, I'm thinking, wow, we've got two companies, the Rangers, that have absolutely nothing to do. How does that work? And, I mean, our Rangers, they put them on guard duty. We needed guards. That's fine. I mean, we could pull guard, too, but we didn't have to. We had Rangers up on the roof, you know, with Maud Deuce and fighting positions. And, um, yeah, they pulled guard duty 24-7. Uh, and me and my one of my buds would climb up on the roof and, 
you know, kind of go hang out with them a little bit, uh, try to keep the morale going. But yeah, that's what we were uh, outfitted to do. And we did signature flights. We kept up, we did signature flights uh, so that Sea Squatter didn't have to do them. They'd done enough. We basically just get our um, armada, you know, with full up with all the, the Hawks and the uh, AH6 and OH6 little birds and uh, kit up full and I remember the first flight we did, they said, yeah, we're going to do, we're going to fly 500 feet at like 60 knots. And we're going to, you know, and, and the, and Ian, the reason for a signature flight is you're keeping up, a, you're keeping up a constant tempo. You're keeping the profile constant that, uh, the helos are not just spinning up when there's a mission. So like the, the model flies over, they have absolutely no mission, but the, the smallies don't know that, you know. Or you're desensitizing so, the target area. Desensitizing the target area, yeah. It's like, oh, here they come, you know, the shit's on, and then we just kind of fly around and nothing happens. Um, so we did those in the day and in the night, uh, did one in the rain, and um, and I, it, it impressed me immediately. You know, we said, well, we're going to do 500 feet, no kidding, 500 feet at 60 miles an hour. I mean, I could I could shoot that target from the hip. You know, that's, are we really going to do that? Uh, but anyway, so we, we jammed in these Blackhawks, 15 men per Blackhawk. Um, it, it was, it was a, an incredible load, man. It's like when you sat down and, and we put a cot in there, a regular army cot right in the middle and strapped it down because we had a row of guys sitting on the cot <laughs> and then a row of guys, you know, sitting in front of them and then a rows of guys hanging out the door, you know, feet hanging out the door. And the uh, one guy sitting on the, the fast rope coil, um, where where your butt hit, that is where it was going to stay. It woun't going to budge. So if you had an itch, <laughs> you better take care of it before the helo took off because we were packed in there. And I thought, man, if we get, if a one bullet comes in here, it's going to kill like nine guys. Yeah, yeah. So, or if we have to, wow. we make a hard landing, it's going to, everyone's going to have like lumbar injuries and no one's going to be able to fight. But that's just the way it was. And we did, we just did those flights uh, day and night. And they, and the 560 knots was, that didn't happen, man. We were 100, about a hundred feet off the deck and moving at over a hundred knots, man. Wow. Flying fast. We were flying fast. And I'm like, this is more like it. You know, I would have, I would actually have to like, you know, lick my front sight post with my thumb, you know, like Sergeant York and settle in and try to get a shot off on that, you know? So did you guys end up running any further operations or was there just a a kind of a lead up to a, I guess a lead up to a wind down and a a withdrawal? It really was a lead up. Like you said, a lead up to a wind down. Uh, We, uh, we didn't do an official assault on, on an objective, uh, anything beyond the signature flights. We kept ourselves. It seems like we were like one step ahead of, all kinds of shit that was hap- that was happening. We just were like not in the right place at the right time. Uh, we occupied ourselves every day with some kind of um, signature activity or at least something that involved some kind of training. Like we flew down the coast and we were doing call for fires with uh, DAPs and um, OH- AHs. And we did those day and night. Um, we, we threw, we, 
shot at targets in the ocean. Uh, the, our, our, our log sail guys built these small boats out of these huge chunks of uh, styrofoam and lit them up with, um, with some freaking uh, chem lights for the nighttime, but they would throw those, they would deploy those things out and our birds would fly over them and we'd riddle the shit out of them, you know, from the air, <laughs> practice shooting targets, you know, from the air, which, which made sense to me. And, you know, we grenaded them and uh, just, just shot the hell out of them. And, and it's something that else that impressed me about our pilots is uh, on, on my OH-6, my little bird, and I was sitting with my good buddy Sam Foster on the, uh, on the pod outside, and we were just gunning, 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 and this bird's making passes over these boats. And I ran out of ammunition. You know, I shot my basic load dry. Well, it was like somewhere around 500 rounds. And, uh, you know, my barrel was smoking, and I was out. Well, the co-pilot, I was sitting on co-pilot's side of the bird. He, hang, he sticks his hand out the window. And he's got a he's got a thirty round magazine, in it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, he, he has a magazine. So I slapped, you know, I grabbed that mag for him, like, you know, and uh, emptied that mag, and I, you know, stuck the mag up in front of his window where he could see it, and he pulled it in, and he stuck another one out the door. <laughs> he did that eight, he did that eight freaking times. <laughs> oh, God damn, these guys, this is what I'm talking about. These guys mean business. <laughs> You know, and if you and you can read the accounts of the pilots of how they flew and the things they did for Sea Squadron, um, you know, they put their birds down in alleyways yeah. and were fucking hanging out the doors, shooting dudes in the alley with MP5s and uh, ARs. I mean, these guys were as, as mixed up as you can get in it. Yeah. But when we landed, you know, I slapped that guy on the back. He looked at me like I, he thought I was going to kick his ass or something. I slapped him on the back in his pilot seat. You know, and shook his hand. You know, I said, "You're the man." He's like, "Oh yeah," he shook his head. You know, <laughs> any any injuries from those flights? No, no, no. I, my squadron only took one. Oh man, you're gonna love this. Uh, we did a we did a goat lab too down the coast. I mean, you know, we didn't know what we were gonna do from day to day. But we flew down the coast, and we jumped out of the helos, went in some ruins. And there was a bunch of, of mutilated goats. And we're like, oh, God. You know, so we saved these goats, you know, uh, saved them, and then they disposed of them. Uh, come to find out, they took them out and dropped them in the ocean, um, but they washed up on shore, which was fucked up because now, <laughs> you know, we were trying to keep it quiet and keep the signature down, but the things washed up on shore, and now everybody could see them. But the one... Uh, the one casualty we took was Jamie Wiedemann. I don't know if that's a familiar name to you, Jack. Yes. Yeah, he's the only guy, man. He, uh, Jamie Wiedemann got a Purple Heart uh, during the, the first night we were there. You know, I always say when it rains, it pours, man. It's like it was pouring from the time we got word in Bra at Bragg. You know, it was just pouring. And, uh, you know, we're running around trying to get settled. And me and Sam Foster went to drop off the letter. We heard there was a mailbox over by C squadron at the talk. We wrote a quick letter. Hi, honey, having a great time here in East Africa. And we went to find this mailbox and freaking uh, got mortared. Mm. And that killed Matt Ryerson and took out like 15 dudes. It was, it was, it was, it was amazing, Matt. It was like it really the day, was. it was the, the day after the mission, right? When they were back. Yeah. In the base that was, and... Yeah, Exactly. 
Um, and more guys in C Squadron got hurt. That really, that 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 fucked with that fucked with me a bit because I, mean, I saw more guys from C Squadron. I go, you know, the rich keep getting richer, man, or the poor keep getting poorer, or something. I'm looking at, you know, Jason Link, and he's 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 got shrapnel in him, and uh, Scott Miller, he's now the SOCOM commander. He mm-hmm. he was a commander on the ground, man. He got hit in the back again with some shrapnel they had his shirt he was already he had a his left arm was bandaged up because he had frags from the fight in the city but you know he, he was just he stayed there and um he they had him sitting down and they had his shirt pulled up over his head and he was bleeding out of his back and i was just like spitting mad at that point and then of course matt ryerson i you know me and my, me and uh sam foster knew that clearly he was dead and uh and, and, and it was the word, it was the most unbelievable mess that he he was laying in too, because he was, because he was in a slightly low spot, and all the uh, the log was piled around. It was pallets of water, pallets of uh, hydraulic fluid for the birds, oil, and that all that shit got punctured and was flooding out, and it was all running down to that little sump where Matt was lying totally bleeding out yeah. so everyone was splashing around in that shit you know sitting in it kneeling in it laying in it uh trying to patch matt up medic is like trying to give him uh resuscitation breaths and it was just bubbling out the back of his, his uh head you know and he had a huge hole in his back so i mean it was like bigger than the whole mortar round so i don't know how it made that hole that big but he was dead, and mm. everybody's slipping and falling because there's oil and shit. So there was that. And Jamie Wiedemann had, was right there, too. I don't know what he was doing, but he got fragged in his hand. And he just – you have to know Jamie, man. The guy is priceless. He's freaking priceless. He, he just, like, looked at it and said, fuck, man, that shit hurts. And he walks back to the terminal building, and he fucking sucked it, and he tore it out with his teeth. Holy shit. Yeah, he just started messing with it and he started biting on it and sucking on it and he pulled it out with his with his teeth. And he never said anything about it. It was like they put him in for a, a purple heart like years later. He's like, I don't want that shit. Like, Jamie, <laughs> take the pain, man. Take it's, the pain. It's safe to say he served with some pretty badass dudes between Pat McNamara and all these guys we're hearing about now. Man, I, so I was wondering, you said eight years in first group, and then how many years in Delta? Ian, in Delta, I was there for uh, like a nice round decade. Wow. So 10 years. Yeah, so I got there so nearly two-decade military career. Um, say that again, sir? N- nearly a two-decade military career. Yeah, I, at 20 years, man, uh, I got out at 20 years. I got out uh, like the first of uh, in January of 2001. Right at 20 years, and uh, I was in the. I w- at the time I was in the Advon uh, squadron, the Advanced Operations Squadron. So I was still pulling triggers. Uh, but what I had in front of me, the next thing I had left in front of me was a fourth rotation to Bosnia. Oh, really? And I, yeah, that is what I had to look forward to. And I, I don't know. I, I remember. I remember when I got the news, like, George, you're going to Bosnia, you know, you're going to be the team leader for, I mean, team leaders, like, you're, there's two people in it, you and a female, basically, that's the team. And I'd already been there twice with two different females. And I, I remember that 
they told me that. I'm like, okay. I sat down at my desk and the day was over. I went home and my, my wife was out in the backyard in the garden. You know, we had this modest garden out there. It was cool as shit. Uh, but I was out there and I was helping her. I was doing the hard part, you know, yanking the weeds. And she was like spritzing plants with a spray bottle or something. And I, and I stopped, I stopped hoeing and I looked up and I said, Hey, you know something, babe? She's like, what? I go, I want to get out of the army. You know, and she, she looked at me. And I go, I'm done, man. January's my 20 years. I don't, I don't want to be in the army anymore. I want out. She said, I totally support that. And I was like, I felt so good after that, man. You know, I was pulling weeds. I was happy. And I went in the next day and, uh, you know, went, told the boss, I said, I'm, I'm done. And uh, got the hell out of there. It was a relief at so, that point. Yeah, man, it was it was such it was such a relief. And I got out. I uh, you know, I I did my clearing. Uh, I had to do you know do some things on main post, which was a uh, which was really tra- traumatic for me. <laughs> it's like I had to go, you know, oh, put on a uniform and go sit in large groups and listen to mindless shit <laughs> to get cleared cleared out of that. I think they call it the cat brief, something to get out. And uh, and who shows up at my cat brief but uh, Doctor. American badass himself, Dale Comstock. <laughs> nice. I'm like, just, I'm like Dale. He's like George. You know. So we're like, now we're like holding on to each other, like little kids. You know, sitting at a table together, <laughs> listening to this guy talk about doing, you know, uh, job interviews and how to dress. And so we did all that and um, got out and, and and went our ways. You know, I came to uh, Vegas, uh, took on a job at the Nevada test site for you know 16 years. And uh, then ended up here, not with my oldest daughter. Well, George, we, uh, of course, once again, this is another one of those interviews where we really just kind of scratched the surface. Yeah, there's so much to talk. Because we we didn't get to Columbia. I know George was doing some training down in uh, Guyana. He has some funny stories about that. And, like, we just kind of like, oh, and all the stuff in Bosnia. So we just kind of barely scratched the surface. You know what I'm wondering, though? So you got out in in 2001, I'm assuming pre-9-11, right? The, the, yeah, two, uh, yeah, 2001, January, 2001, uh, you, you know, but I started working there on May 1st in, uh, in Las Vegas. So May, June, July, September, bam, it, that came down and, uh, a Sergeant major deployed from Bragg and came out to where I was working. Cause we had 13 former unit guys working there with us in that, in that, uh, project. And he sat down with us and threw out all kinds of deals on the table for us to come back. He said, you can come back, you can do this, you can be this, you can do that. And nobody took any of his deals. Nobody took, not even one guy uh, took the deals. So, hmm. uh, it, you know, and, I, and there was like a lot of sour grapes from some of the guys because, you know, like, man, I waited so long there. I just couldn't stand it anymore. I leave the same year this, this crap happens. I'm like, go back, man, go back to the unit son of a bitch, go shoot. And, and, and they all ended up going to Triple Canopy and places like that. Uh, and I, I'm the only one that stayed working with the, the DOE, contract to the DOE. Like, you know, 12 guys left. They went to Triple Canopy. I said, they got out and they're out. They're back doing the same shit. You know, they're getting killed. Uh, 
they're getting maimed. One of the guys lost both eyes on a grenade impact oh my God. in Iraq. I'm like, God dang. Uh, so I, I know I there's my one choice and stuck to it, man. There's one former Delta member who, uh, he went back to Iraq as a contractor and got captured. And I think they had to, someone had to pay ransom to get him out. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. I, I don't, I don't have a lot to say about that, but that is true. Jack It's true. Sounds like in a lot of ways, though, I mean, you honorably served for two decades. You did what you had to do, and you probably did get out at the right time. Um, as, as Jack was just saying, like, there's plenty more to cover, but I guess one last question from me, and I'm sure that this could be expanded on for a whole another show, but just, I guess, briefly, how did the transition then happen to doing what you're doing today, which is working with local law enforcement and combating human trafficking? Well, the trans... My transition, and I did write about it a bit, my, my transition was not any nicer than anybody else's. I guarantee you it wasn't. Uh, my first few years with the Department of Energy were, uh, were rough, man. They were really rough. I had to sit in front of a board, uh, a panel of, of uh, senior management several times, you know what I mean, like get boarded to get, to get kicked out for doing things. Wow. And, uh, I, I, but I always had immediate supervisors and bosses who stuck up for me. You know, they really did. They, they, they would come in and sit with me during the board and say, Oh, I call bullshit on that, that remark and that question and, you know, take, take chances because they, because I worked for them and they knew what it was like to have me work for them. They're like, man, George, here's, here's some cash. You know, here's a destination. Here's a task. I'll see you when I see you, and let me go. And it was you know, that that kind of management was a godsend. You know, I was living life again, man. I was going 100 miles an hour. I was, you know, I was figuring out what I was going to do uh, at the next destination on the way out there. You know, um, just just running myself ragged. And uh, but it that shit caught up with me eventually. Um, you know, I never really did fully transition well. Uh, I, uh, my conduct caught up with me, and I got the boot finally, and nobody could save me. So uh, I, and that's kind of how I ended up here. Uh, but it, um, the, the way I got my job here, I mean, I was here. I was really, really sick, man. I was a sick dude. I was really sick, and my daughter was taking care of me. And I had no job, and I had no mission focus. And um, the Second Seventy Fifth Regimental Command Sergeant Major Greg Birch knew a guy. He never met him before, but he worked with him over the phone in Pakistan, in Peshawar, Pakistan, doing up missions. He knew this guy, and he knew the guy was in Albuquerque, and he knew the guy was running a nonprofit. That, uh, and was looking for people that could work out on the street and make things happen. Greg gave me the guy's number, told me briefly about him. And I called the, the dude up and, and I said, Hey, good afternoon, sir. My name is George Han. And he said, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm like, I'm like, well, let me tell you a little bit about myself because well, I don't need to know anymore. Says Greg already told me enough. That's and why said, people okay, think so highly of Sergeant major Birch. Yeah. I, I mean, 
don't get me started, man. I, I his birthday was uh, like two days ago or something, and um, I him and I text like we text one line every two or three months. We text each other one line, and on his birthday, I said, I said, uh, hey man, you didn't wish me happy birthday on my birthday, so I'll be damned if I'm going to remember you on yours. <laughs> and that's what I that's what I sent him, and he sent back shukran. <laughs> it's uh no it's great to hear these stories because he was my sergeant major when i first got to ranger battalion and uh yeah. and that's why you always have these stories talking about greg and i'm like oh you mean sergeant major birch right oh, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I, I would never think of him in another way i, I remember when i was a, i was a brand new private i was an e2 and um, I actually ran into our regimental sergeant major in the chow hall line. And he knew, I mean, he takes one look at me and he knows I'm a brand new kid right out of, the, out of RIP. And uh, he starts asking me, he's like, what do you think you're a battalion sergeant major there, Murphy? And I was like, ah, I don't really know sergeant major. I haven't met him yet. And he's like, okay, well, turn around and, and meet him right now. And so I turn around oh, and, uh, oh. and I shake hands with uh, Sergeant Major Birch. And uh, I just look into this dude's eyes and I knew immediately as a 19-year-old as a know-nothing, I knew at that moment, like, this is not someone to be trifled with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to screw with this guy. Um, but he was held, he is held in very high regard in the Ranger Regiment and, uh, and with good reason. You know, he did a lot for us. Yeah, that's that's definitely Greg. I mean, Greg came from B Squadron, so Mac got to work with Greg for years, and Mac spoke really highly of Greg Birch, you know. And then Greg came over to take a leadership position in my squadron, and I was I was tickled to death, you know, that that I got to be in the squadron with him. And then we ended up in AFO together. And you know, Greg, even Greg, like at his most relaxed, you know, when we're just like scratching our asses and making jokes and. Even even at that, during those times, he still got that that air of like that is the best soldier in the army, you know, in, in the modern yeah, army today. Yeah. This is like the best. Even at his worst, he, he's. I still think that's the best soldier that the army has right now. Yeah, that yeah. intensity and um, and, and also it was just a, a. It seemed like a continuous focus on coaching, teaching, and mentoring soldiers, um, and, and training them and teaching them the right way to do things and choosing the hard right over the easy wrong. I, those are some of the words and some of the impressions that, you know, from yeah. working under him that sta- that still stand out with me. That's completely correct. Um, he's, he does that and he does it with as few words as possible. I mean, that, that, that always amazed me how he could get so much across, you know, in so few words and almost everything he would tell me would make me want to go, like look in the mirror in the bathroom and say, you need to get your shit together. You, know? <laughs> so you need to sit up straight when that dude walks. And the women loved him in that, in the squad, in that squadron there. They loved Greg. Because they he was so professional. Yeah. He, they loved him just because of what you described, the mentoring, the coaching. And you know what I mean? He was such a super fit there. And they hated my guts, those women, and I wanted it that way, and I was glad. <laughs> and I hated them. No, no, they were. Yeah, I was. I was no good there, but uh, it's okay. It's okay. And and you know what? I think that's that's a great way to wrap it up. Um, as as yeah. as Jack was saying, like, there's plenty more that we could cover, but I think as you said a few minutes ago, 
I, I think a great way to end it is that you got hired doing what you're doing now off name alone. Like that puts you in legendary status. I think <laughs> if someone said George Hand, you have the job. That's awesome. I appreciate that, and, and I, I've cheated myself out of a couple of minutes to to ask you about some time you did with Wilkow. But you know, well, you can ask me whatever. I don't think any story with Wilkow is anywhere near as interesting as what we've covered in the past uh, hour and fifteen minutes. But I know, but that's. That's I. That's just I want to hear about it. So maybe and and Jack knows Andrew just about as well as I do. I mean, he's a very genuine guy. He's you know he's one of those guys that he does have like a larger than life personality on air. And I think people say like, oh, is this yeah, yeah, is this like put on for the show? Is this uh, an act of some sort? And I can tell you, it's definitely not. Like you've been with him off air and he is intense 24 yeah yeah no he it's it's not an act i mean that's really how he how he is but i mean yeah if you were to uh, if you were to have a one-on-one conversation with him he's not like yelling at you the way he yells into the <laughs> microphone no oh yeah but yeah. he but he is you that know, intense I, I would be i would be literally pr- imprisoned in my truck on the Nevada test site listening to the guy you know like i, I can't get out of my truck i mean i'm you know i gotta i gotta stay and listen i'm at my destination but i can't get out i, I have to listen to the <laughs> And I, and I often thought, asked myself, go, I don't know if I would like this guy or not. I don't know. No, I think you, know, you would. I He's, met him. I, would I like him? I'm not sure. But Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think so. I think actually even people that don't like the show when they meet him as a person like yeah, him. And, yeah. and I could relate to that, man, because I was a radio major at Hofstra, Hofstra University. I'd be going to these classes with like npr guys talking radio and it was all very boring yeah, a lot of the time and yeah, i'd yeah. be driving around the parking lot i'd have will cow on before i ever met the guy and i would yeah. be totally enthralled by whatever he was talking about agree with him or disagree with him which you know i'm, I'm not a guy who's 100 percent in agreement with him but he he does a great job stating his case sometimes and i'd be late for class because i'd be too list, too busy listening to what he was doing and Little did I know that one day I'd get to work with the guy. It's just it's it's uh, crazy how life works out like that, right? I mean, it, that reminds yeah. me of your story of learning Mandarin Chinese. You had no idea if it would apply to your job, and then years down the line, it's it's what gets you your gig. Yeah, and I've calculated that I I I drew something like over the time uh, I drew about seventeen thousand dollars in language pay. By the time I retired, mm. so when I calculated all, you know, hundred dollars a month, you know, blah blah blah. So seventeen thousand dollars, I ended up profiting out of knowing that language. Uh, but but Will Cow, that that guy, he he got more laughs out loud for me in my truck by myself. <laughs> Probably, I think Jay Moore is the only one that got more, more laughs out of me. Yeah, he's funny out too. loud, and that's hard to do, man. It's hard to make me laugh out loud. Well, come come to New York sometime, and we'll uh, we'll come to New York sometime. We'll all hang out. So, you know, when I get my uh, my knees uh, fixed, which I have a a date scheduled now, so I'm really, I really am doing something about it, and I'm able to travel again. uh, I can see myself in New York, you know, and I can especially see myself in Vegas for the shot. Nice. Have you guys met in person, Jack? No. Yeah, so this is like one of the few guys from the site that we've never met in person. Yeah, no, I'd love to get together yeah. with George. That's why we tre- uh, we've uh, tried to get you out to the shot show a few times. Yeah, I know, and and, and it's it's always been the same uh, the same excuse, man. I I just can't I can't travel. I mean, 
Josh Collins asked me yesterday, freaking yesterday, they're, they're shooting a movie and it's in New York and it's on the 25th, 26th of April. Um, and it's with NFL players. Uh, I don't know the, the, the parameters completely know the parameters, but, uh, he wanted me to be there. Um, you know, because it's, it's all about PTSD and TBI and all that shit. And I'm 100% PTSD with, by VA, um, assessment. And I was like, Josh, man, you've been asking me to go places for years now. He wanted me to paddle from Texas to New York with him. I'm like, Josh, I can't, I can't stand. I can't travel. Mm. You know, quit asking me to, to, to go places. I can't do it. But anyway, uh, that's all going to be over probably in July. Gotcha. Well, that's, uh, that's good to hear. Hopefully we'll meet you um, once again on Twitter at George E. Hand the fourth, which is George E. Hand IV. Thanks for going well over an hour with us. Like this was a great uh, discussion and there's, there's a lot more to talk about. I mean, a 20 year career in the military is probably more than, than any other authors on the site right now. I mean, that's a pretty distinguished career. Yeah. George was there for a long time. Ian, Scott and Jack, it's always a pleasure, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks George. We'll do it again sometime soon. Thanks my brothers. Talk to you soon, George. Out here. Well, great having George on, uh, I'm glad that we we went really long this episode. Those are always, you know, a pleasure to do, and the time flies by. And and I could tell that uh, for George, as I was kind of saying to Jack, uh, you you could tell he was being very vulnerable there, and it sounds like oftentimes it's a call just between guys, and you you get stuff out of there that he probably hasn't told in years. Yeah. No, and I mean, that's always the goal, you know, is... And it's always a uh, it's an interesting feeling when you get somebody on it, on the phone or in person and you get them to talk about things that they probably haven't even thought about in a long time. You know, I mean, I've interviewed people who haven't really talked about Vietnam since they served there 50 years ago. I mean, that's an that's an interesting experience. Yeah. Steve Balistieri was telling me that, too, how he's interviewing these guys from the older generations and. A lot of them have never told their story. This was pre the days of social media for sure and pre the days of a lot of guys writing books and articles and all that. They just they came home, never talked about it again. Yeah. Uh, Steve even said like his father never spoke to him about his experiences. So uh looking forward to all that. Hope you guys enjoyed this. Now uh wrapping things up, there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans. From several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Past items we've had in our premium crates have been an EDC med kit put together by Benghazi survivor, Army Ranger Chris Peranto, and that ballistic uh, shield insert for your backpack made by Cry Precision, which is fucking awesome. Uh, Crate Club's really stepping up its game right now as 2018's progressing, and they're putting out custom products that you're not going to find anywhere else. We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you intend to be, and gift options are available as well. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. For you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've just launched Kuna with, with a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month. Uh, it includes healthy treats, training aids, it's uh, custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. 
Um, you can see it all at kuna.dog, and that's kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog's going to appreciate it, of course, and that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. And last, as a reminder for all those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. Uh, Our premiere show, Training Cell, follows former Spec Ops forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to Spec Ops Channel uh, at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership. It's only $4.99 a month. Uh, With that... Wrapping this up, and then in a couple hours, I'll be recording. Actually, in about an hour, I'll be recording with Brandon Webb uh, for the Power of Thought podcast. So check that out. We have an interview with Siri Lindley, who's a triathlete. So if you haven't checked out Brandon's podcast, go do that. We haven't done one in a couple of weeks, so glad to uh, have a great guest on. We have some really other, some other cool people lined up for the future. Michael Kalameko, who's a chef, um, very different from what we're doing here. But good stuff, good content. Um, yeah, awesome having George on. Really loved it. And we have a lot of great guests lined up. Uh, finally, part two of Mike Vining is coming up, which I've gotten a lot of questions about. When is that going to air? Because they, they heard us teasing a part two, and it is going to happen. Yeah, and I'm working on a few other people, too. I actually reached out to somebody uh, this morning. Yeah, Kurt, hear back soon. Curtis Albers will be back on. I'm looking at this. Uh, John Mayer will be back on Amber Smith uh, so a lot of return guests that we just haven't heard from in a while sweet yeah and uh, and your former teammate right Paul Paul Shari yeah, yeah he'll be on uh, he'll be in studio we haven't had an in studio guest in a while so we'll actually live stream that one people always ask actually like do you guys live stream the show where could I find it we do when we have someone in studio I wouldn't even know how to live stream it to be honest if, if it was all on Skype and all that. Um, so when we have someone in studio, we do, which we haven't in a while. But that'll be on um, Soprep TV on YouTube and Soprep uh, on Facebook and Twitch, all that stuff. And pre-order Murphy's Law. It's coming. You've been listening to Soprep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Softrep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.